0: Hello, and welcome to New Books and Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa. I'm co-host of the channel, along with Robert Talise, Sarah Tyson, and Malcolm Keating. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books in a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Jessica Wilson, who is a Professor of Philosophy at the University of Toronto. Her new book, Metaphysical Emergence, is just out from Oxford University Press. Is an ordinary object like a tree nothing but its material makeup? Or does reality include trees and other things above and beyond what they're made of? How about consciousness? Is it nothing but neural activity? Or is it something over and above it? Metaphysical emergence is a leading non-reductive theory of how we can be committed to a fully material world without accepting that everything reduces to fundamental physics. In Metaphysical Emergence, Wilson synthesizes scholarship on the idea of emergence and divides the existing proposals into two basic schemas, strong emergence and weak emergence. She elaborates the differences between the forms and the main objections to each form, and she stakes out controversial positions regarding the existence of phenomena that satisfy each form, for example, On her view, current evidence does not support the ideas that dynamically self-organizing complex systems or consciousness are strongly emergent. Wilson's book promises to be a landmark in the theoretical literature on emergence and on its applications. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Jessica Wilson. Welcome to New Books in Philosophy. Uh, Hello, Carrie. Thanks for having me on. That's great. I'm, I'm very eager to talk about your new book, metaphysical emergence, a very, very important topic, um, uh, across a lot of different, uh, areas in philosophy, but in particular from my perspective in philosophy of mind, and I'm glad that two of the main cases that you talk about, uh, in the book are, you know, consciousness and, and free will. Um, but, um, yeah, so I'm really, I'm really glad to be talking about, you know, you, you're bringing a lot of your, your work together into a, into a big comprehensive discussion of the idea of metaphysical emergence. Um, so can you tell a bit about yourself first, before we get to the book itself, you know, how you, how you got to become a philosopher and, and how you came to write the book?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, you know, there are, it's uh it's actually related to the topic of the book. I had a kind of uh checkered history, you know, finding my way to philosophy. I actually first went to art school and then I I felt I uh didn't quite have uh the vision or the chops for that and then I studied physics for a while, ended up with a math degree and worked as a computer programmer for a few years. But a kind of common thread in my interest in art, uh, physics, math, and also a um, an honors thesis project that I did as an undergraduate, um, which was titled Elements of Pattern and Form in Real Objects. Uh, in that project, I, I went around and I took black and white photos of uh, things like soap bubbles or um, you know honeycombs and so on and then uh, kind of uh, did some research on the physical and mathematical principles you know that made them uh, appear as they as they did so um, connecting uh, those <laughs> diverse interests I think what uh, really inspired me was trying to Think about how natural reality sort of fits together. Um, how you know the macro objects of our experience and so on depend on uh, you know lower levels, uh, cellular, physical, microphysical, etc. And you know how do things actually hang together, and what are the sort of causal and uh, broadly ontological principles that, that connect them all. And for a long time, I didn't realize that uh, there was an area of contemporary investigation, namely uh, metaphysics or metaphysics of science, including metaphysics of mind, which sort of targeted um, you know those sorts of uh, issues and questions at a level of generality and yet uh, precision You know that really uh, suited my my own intellectual inclinations. So um, at a certain point, as as I was working in computer programming, I thought, you know, I've got to go back to school. And I wasn't sure what I wanted to study, but flipping through the course catalog at um, the University of Colorado Boulder, I happened to be living in Boulder at the time. I came upon the philosophy course offerings and metaphysics and epistemology, and then I was like, okay, this is this is it. is what I've been looking for. So I went back to school. I ended up going to uh, Cornell um, and uh, getting my PhD there. And that was a really wonderful department for me to be in, in part because Sidney Shoemaker, um, whom I'm sure you are uh, familiar with, um, was there. And he, he ended up being my chair. And he's also interested in these issues of uh, you know connection in the sciences and so on. And I ended up writing a thesis on the question of how to make sense of certain comprehensive theses about natural reality, in particular, uh, physicalism, uh, the thesis that all the broadly scientific phenomena are, in some sense, completely metaphysically dependent on, you know, massively complex, lower level physical goings on. That's a kind of physicalist view. And there's a bunch of different varieties of of physicalism, as as we'll see down the line. And then a sort of uh, naturalistically acceptable but still anti-physicalist view, according to which at least some uh, phenomena, uh, perhaps qualitative mental experience or free agency, free will, um, are genuinely over and above lower-level physical goings-on, even though in some sense they are, as I put it, cotemporally dependent on the lower-level physical goings-on. So this second view is sometimes associated with a school of thought um, called British emergentism, John Stuart Mill and C.D. Broad, some others uh, writing in the late uh, uh, 19th century thinking about um, you know chemical and uh, you know, subjective mental uh, experience or phenomena as being somehow uh, strong, as I put it, strongly emergent. So these are the two, these two kinds of comprehensive theses about uh, natural reality that um, were the target of my, my dissertation and at that point, I was already thinking in terms of metaphysical emergence as a way of characterizing uh, what I saw as the best um, uh, instantiations of, of these two separate strands. So, the physicalism camp you have you have reductive physicalists and you have non-reductive physicalists, and the non-reductive physicalists want to take the appearances of you know, level structure where you have macro entities that are dependent on and yet distinct from uh, lower level physical entities at face value. So that's why they're called non-reductive physicalists. And looking forward to the book, this is um, uh, associated with what I call weak emergence. And then on on the British emergentist side, this is, you know, uh, looking at a a different way of, of capturing uh, the nat- seemingly level structure of natural reality in a way that, again, is it's not a form of substance dualism or anything like that. It's not Cartesian dualism. It's it, you know the idea is that there's a partial, if not complete, dependence on the physical, but at least some phenomena are over and above uh, lower level physical goings so on. So already in my thesis, I was sort of um, um, formulating these two. Uh, forms of metaphysical emergence and investigating their viability i was defending them against certain objections and so on and that was really uh, you know kind of the basis for the book and then over the uh, subsequent two decades since i um, got a, got my phd then i've been you know publishing on this there have been a bunch of different objections and extensions and applications and so on. So the book was sort of wrapping up this <laughs> comparatively long trajectory of my um, you know going through different disciplines and finding my way to philosophy and and really finding a home for uh, this kind of investigation.
0: Cool. Um, well, yeah, that's so, I mean, that's pretty comprehensive, uh, kind of like the book itself. Um, uh, so yeah, you mentioned, you know, there's the, the whole idea that, you know, reality is nothing but, you know, the sort of the basic physical goings on entities and goings on. And then, and that's the, roughly the reductive view, um, and then the non-reductive, you know, the, it's always struck me as, you know, they just have a harder, a harder path to to, to forge there because if you want to say something that it's over and above, you know, but not distinct, right? You know, so as you put it, dependency, but not, but somehow distinct, and 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 that's that gets into subtleties that um, are difficult because. Because the whole idea is, you don't want to be a dualist. I mean, dualism is is easy in comparison, um, and so this is kind of trying to lay out what exactly it would mean to be, in, in effect, a uh, you know one of the main forms of non-reductive physicalism. Um, and you you characterized the central idea, you know, before you get into details, as this idea of you know, material dependence or, or cotemporal as you put it, material dependence, uh of, you know special science entities and features, which you'll need to explain, um, along with their ontological and causal um autonomy with respect to their the base the things on which they depend. So can you can you kind of explain that the the basic idea of metaphysical emergence and, you know, where most people agree on, you know, uh, on what metaphysical emergence is?
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, let me start by saying a little bit more about the the kind of uh, broadly pre-theoretic data that, um, you know, as philosophers or uh, metaphysicians of science, we kind of take into our purview and put on the table that we're trying to accommodate um, and this is, I think, um, you know, the the data is motivating the conception of metaphysical emergence as involving, as you said, what I characterize as, uh, you know, uh, cotemporal material dependence. So there's dependence on the one hand, and by cotemporal, what I really mean is just broadly synchronic. I use the were cotemporal instead of synchronic just to prevent people from thinking that emergence has to be instantaneous. Okay. So it doesn't, um, for example, you know, as a, uh, the process of respiration in a plant or something like that, that could be temporally extended, but that process, uh, on an emergentist conception, it would be, uh, in some sense, um, you know, co-present with some sort of, lower level cellular and ultimately fundamental physical complex uh, goings so on and so on. So the idea is that it's, uh, emergence is not um, unlike causation, as usually understood. It's not something where, you know, first you have something and then later you have something that emerges. The emergent is supposed to be sort of um, instantiated or occurring at the same time or over the same temporal interval, as the lower level goings-on upon which it depends. Now, the I use this term goings-on to cover both entities and features, and you asked me to explain that, so let me do that just very quickly right now. Um, by entities, I just mean anything like an object or a state or an event or something that uh, would typically be the bearer of a property, right? Um, it's like an individual, it may fall under a type or something, something like a cell or a tree or a planet or a person, et cetera, Um, features. So entity is like a general term for something, some, something like that. And then feature is a general term for things like properties or, um, behaviors and so on. So, you know, on the one hand entities, something like the, thingy, (laughs) Um, and uh, feature something like, you know, ways things are, right? So objects and properties are kind of paradigmatic cases of an entity and a feature, uh, respectively. So um, in the sciences, you have a scientific consensus and the special, you know, structure of the special sciences sort of uh, initially suggests, or pre-theoretically, broadly speaking, suggests that um, macro entities, special science entities, including macro entities, uh, of the sort that I just mentioned, um, you know, they inherit their matter, so to speak, from the lower level, from various lower level configurations, ultimately fundamental physical configurations. So the only substance is physical substance. Okay. That's, um, uh, it's, one way to put that is to say that uh, emergence is generally committed to something like physical monism. And that's true for both the forms of physically acceptable emergence that are associated with non-reductive physicalism, as well as the forms of physically unacceptable emergence, which are associated with uh, British emergentism, so-called. Okay. Weak and strong emergence, re- respectively. Um, now, in addition to this idea that, um, you know, natural uh, uh, phenomena typically, you know, there's, they're cotemporally, materially dependent on lower level physical configurations, there's also um, evidence, so to speak, from the sciences as well as our own experience that these special science goings on... Um, Have uh, a degree of autonomy, ontological autonomy, which is just to say that they're distinct. They seem to be distinct from the lower level configurations. Um, So, a tree, for example, you know, it appears to us not as a blooming buzz of microphysical confusion, but you know, a a comparatively unified uh, entity and. More generally, special science entities are associated with distinctive taxonomies in the diverse special sciences, indicating that they fall under different types, types that are related somehow, you know, um, over if we're looking at the broader picture to physical types, but themselves are not uh, lower level physical types. And on the other hand, too, we also see features, that is to say properties and behaviors of these Uh, macro entities or more generally special science entities that, um, you know, are associated with, uh, you know, again, the special science laws that treat of these goings on, Um, you know, um, trees can be deciduous or evergreen. and They engage in all sorts of, uh, as I said, respiration, growth, um, et cetera. So those sorts of features do not, seem to be on the face of it features of even massively complex lower level physical goings on. And the, so those those kinds of considerations to distinctive special science taxonomies uh, adverting to, you know, special types and special features of special science goings on um, uh, suggests that the special science entities are, and features are, different from the lower level configurations and their features. So that's distinctness or ontological autonomy. And then if we look at the special science laws, those are typically causal laws to some extent. And uh, again, uh, we might have a prima facie case for thinking that these special science goings-on are distinctively efficacious in virtue of entering into distinctive special science laws. So those are. that's just one kind of consideration that sort of motivates the idea that um, there is metaphysical immersion. So if we have this kind of cotemporal metaphysical dependence, material dependence, uh, coupled with some kind of ontological autonomy, in other words, distinctness, and causal autonomy, in other words, distinctive efficacy... Then that you know that is constitutive of metaphysical emergence, and all accounts of metaphysical emergence are going to you know accept that those general characteristics, and then they differ in how they you know go about cashing out the dependence at issue or the um, distinctive forms of ontological and causal autonomy. Um, uh, there was what was it going to say? Um, Sorry, I was sort of
0: lost. Yeah, no, that's okay. Um, it might come back to you. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, Well, I was just going to say. So, you know, to use the example that you were using before of a tree, you know, for for any for any emergentist view, um, you know, and we'll go into the two different you know types that you say kind of exhaust the 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 possibilities, at least. Um, uh, a tree is 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 you know something over and above just the you know the the atoms you know and, and whatever physical parts that that make up its cells and so on and so forth through all the levels of of biological reality. And the tree so the tree is something else beyond is something over and above that or is, is not is not nothing but you know and then the tree has certain powers. Of some sort, as a tree, and not just what's going on at the you know level again of the physical particles.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it doesn't just all for for the emergentists, whether of the physically acceptable slash weak or the physically unacceptable slash strong variety. Um, you know, there there is um, a sense there is sense to be made of natural reality as having a kind of leveled structure. OK, it's not simplistic, doesn't have to be like a layered cake, but it's not the case that, you know, it's only atoms in the void or, you know, waves in the field or whatever it ends up being. So uh, these things really exist. Trees, you know, they exist and not just as some kind of logical combination of lower level micro configurations, but they exist in their own right and they behave in their own right. And I remember what I was going to say uh, a couple of things uh that uh, I want to just uh, throw out there the those those people who identify as metaphysical emergentists or who want to try to make sense of it like myself um, are trying to take these appearances of leveled structure you know as involving a kind of dependence along with autonomy trying to take uh, make sense of that in metaf- you know as uh, um, in or with realistic face value um, other people will offer, you know, deflationary accounts of these um, right, right. And so on, or maybe they say they're merely ep- epistemological; they're just a matter of, you know, our limited perceptual and other apparatus, or you know, the fact that you can't only calculate using the fundamental physical goings on. But the in interest, like you said, the interest of metaphysical emergence is, has to do with its providing realistic accommodation of these know broadly scientific uh experiences or appearances and all of our also of our ordinary experience of macro objects including ourselves um in a way that is naturalistically acceptable that or you know um that doesn't uh like as on a cartesian or substance dualist account doesn't necessarily involve any supernatural or uh, non-physical substance elements. So that's that's kind of the strategy, right? Um,
0: so there's two. I mean, have you mentioned you've you've sort of you've already alluded to both of these the the weak form. Weak emergence and then strong emergence, um, and uh, you know very briefly the 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 weak version she put is is somehow acceptable. You know it it accepts uh, with physicalism it accepts the idea of physical causal closure, which you can go into, and um, whereas the strong version you know denies denies causal closure of the physical, and you know again to. You know, put out the dif- main difference in, in the terms that you articulate, and in strong emergence, you know, is kind of characterized by what you title the the new power condition. There's new powers at the at the emergent level, whereas in the weak version, it's the it's what you um, articulate as the proper subset of powers condition. So, can you can you let's, let's start with strong emergence, right? Because that's a bit. Easier, I guess. It's a more simpler. Um, uh, what 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 is what is that view? Okay, good. Um, so, in my book, I uh,
1: offer two schemas. What I call it, two schemas for metaphysical emergence, corresponding to you know the weak variety and the strong variety. And I argue that um, many of the existing accounts of emergence metaphysical emergence in particular aim to implement one or other of these schemas so that you know there's a, look there's an incredible diversity of specific suggestions out there about how to understand specifically the cotemporal dependence condition or the autonomy conditions but i argue that the vast majority can be slotted into one or the other schema and the schemas themselves are based in, uh, in well they couple co- they just have a cotemporal each of them has a cotemporal material dependence condition which is basically encoding the assumption of physical monism along with you know the idea that if you, you know, have a higher level or an emergent feature then you've got some lower level configuration and or a configurational feature and so on so there's a kind of uh, trying to build in the physical monism and a certain correlational uh, dependence at issue in that condition. But all the real action has to do with these conditions that you mentioned, the new power condition for the case of strong emergence or the proper subset of powers condition for the case of weak emergence, because those are the conditions that, um, you know, are doing the hard work of establishing ontological and causal autonomy. Right. So that's what you know, that's why they're most of the focus in the book and most of the discussion has been around those those conditions. So I argue that if we think in terms of, uh, first of all, um, just quick step back, usually in these contexts, uh, it's assumed by nearly everyone working on this topic that you can understand the emergence of an entity in general, by attention to the emergence of the features, so if you had, for example, if a mental you know persons are emergent in some sense, it's in virtue of having some you know emergent feature, perhaps free will or some kind of ability for consciousness or qualitative experience, and so on. So um, focusing on features, the new power condition in the case of strong emergence says that um, strong emergence are cotemporally material dependent and they have some token power, right? That the configurational feature upon which they cotemporally materially depend does not have. So if you have, um, and it's kind of, I'll, I'll talk about the mental case, uh, for example. So some, some people have thought that consciousness is strongly emergent. Would that, uh, you know, I, as you, as you, as you know, um, I don't think we have very good reasons for thinking that, but some people have, are fans of this view. And what it would come to for there to be a strongly emergent uh, qualitative feature uh, would be for that feature to, again, cotemporally material depend on some you know neurophysiological feature, ultimately lower level fundamental physical feature. And for that uh, mental feature to have a a token power that is not uh, had by the fundamental physical features upon which it depends. Now, how to make sense of that, that's another story. And um, we can talk more about that later. But if you can make sense of this, then uh, you can see how it would be that the mental feature would be different from the lower level physical feature upon which it depends because it has a different. Power so different powers means by Leibniz's law they're different, and you can easily see how that mental feature would also be distinctively efficacious, um, because if you have a new power, great, you are doing something that your the lower level configuration upon which you depend can't do, or can't do except in virtue of being a kind of basis for you to come around and do that hard work. So that's strong emergence. Um, do you want me to go ahead and talk about weak emergence? And just, um
0: Yeah. Uh yeah. And then maybe we can think or or maybe just say, you know, what what might be the what the problem, main problem with that might be mm-hmm.
1: the um the main objection to the viability, like the in-principle viability of of strong emergence is that it would be somehow naturalistically unacceptable for there to be these kind of novel powers these novel and and uh the the cases that we're talking about there'd be novel fundamental powers new powers that are just as fundamental as any lower level fundamental physical powers and they come about only under certain complex cir- uh, circumstances for example when you get some kind of complex neurological confirmation or something like that and um you know we have to be honest that there's not a lot of, you know, evidence, current scientific or empirical evidence for there being new fundamental interactions that are associated with new fundamental powers um, at that level of complexity. However, I think it's also important to realize that There's nothing in principle problematic with there being such uh, novel fundamental powers or associated fundamental interactions. And in fact, uh, I look to, you know, scientific uh, history, like the um, weak nuclear interaction was uh, itself an interaction, a novel fundamental interaction that comes around only at the level, you know, certain level of complexity, namely the atom. So now that wasn't considered a uh, non-physical fundamental interaction. This is still very lower level, uh, you know, comparatively non-complex goings on. That's fine. But there's the point is just that there's nothing in principle problematic with the idea of novel fundamental interactions and associated powers coming around only at certain levels of complexity. And I say, well, you know, moreover, you um, we could, in principle, test for such novel fundamental interactions and powers by considering whether there were any apparent violations of conservation laws that happened under those levels of complexity. That's how they did it with the weak nuclear interaction. So that was the motivation for positing this novel fundamental interaction and associated powers, was that the previous fundamental interactions really you know, weren't telling the whole story, so it looked like there was a violation of conservation law, and they faced a choice: should we say that you know energy is not conserved, or should we posit a new fundamental interaction and associated particles or whatever is carrying away that missing energy? And of course, they do the latter. Now, look, um, now uh, they're treating weak nuclear interaction in a different way, right? So there's been unification of of various interactions and so on. But my point is just that historically, at a certain point in time, scientists were happy to posit fundamental configurational interactions and associated powers. So in principle, there could be strongly emergent phenomena at higher levels of configurational complexity. And that's just what the British emergentists thought that there was. So the main objection is strong emergence to the effect that somehow it would be incompatible with scientific practice or naturalistically unacceptable or so on. That, that's not true. That, that doesn't actually withstand scrutiny. I'll just say one other thing about that, too. It's a way to think about how if there were strong emergent powers or forces, um, you know, to say, well, wouldn't that violate the laws of physics? Well, not really on the understanding of those laws, say um, Newton's second law or Schrodinger's equation and so on, as these are laws that will take any and all forces and energies into their purview. So if I say F equal M a, and then you say, oh, you you had the electromagnetic force and the gravitational force, you need this new force. That's completely compatible with F equal M a. And the same goes for the energies that are associated or input into uh, Schrodinger's equation. If there were strong emergent fundamental powers and interactions, they would just be new fundamental forces or energies that had to be added into the the overall mix. So again, there's no in principle problem with strong emergence uh, from a naturalistic point of view.
0: Mm. yeah although it, does, it, it it always has you know when you're talking about like consciousness or you know um you know there's always the the kind of the whiff of of, of, of dualism uh or or some or magic <laughs> you know that somehow these these you know new powers come in and somehow they're dependent but they're but they're new. Um that that can be really hard to kind of wrap your head around, I think. Yeah. I hear you. And
1: you know, that's why (laughs) I I've tried to um connect strong emergence to, you know, these scientifically uh respectable uh conceptions. Imposits, namely, that of a fundamental interaction and, and associated powers or forces, so that people could see how it would actually work. It's not like a magic, you know, some kind of injection of a new, um, yeah, um, uh, some kind of new s- stuff that happens or anything like that. It's, it would just be yet another fundamental interaction. We've already seen there are several of those. And, you know, you posit what you need to in order to make sense of the phenomena, but that said, um, as I said, the the empirical motivation for most claims of strong emergence is not in place.
0: Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, so how about weak? I mean, that's the um, that's the the one where you're not saying there is a n- novel power, um, but there's just that's a right. proper subset view.
1: Yes, exactly. So now we move over to the kind of physically acceptable forms of metaphysical emergence. Um, and here, um, the physicalist, as you you mentioned, physical causal closure before, and, um, you know, the physicalist is going to say that any physical goings on have a purely physical sufficient cause and, um, you know basically this is expressing the idea that uh the physical goings-on are doing all the causal work for effectively in some sense for all of natural reality okay um so another way to, in terms of fundamental interactions the idea would be that the only interaction fundamental interactions are physical fundamental interactions that's what the strong emergentist denies but any physicalist, whether reductive or non-reductive, is going to accept that the only fundamental interactions uh, are physical. So then how can they make it the case that higher level phenomena are distinctively efficacious as uh, per, you know, this characterization of metaphysical emergence is involving, you know, not just distinctness, but also some kind of distinctive efficacy. Well, they can't say what the strong emergentist does because that would involve a violation of causal physical causal closure. If there were really fundamental interactions at, for example, the mental level, that would violate, you know, the idea that the physical uh, phenomena were kind of doing all the causal work. So uh, what I observe is that there's another strategy that physicalists can avail themselves of, namely to look at the um, the powers of the higher level entity as being a proper subset of those of its lower level of uh, dependence base entity or feature. Now, if you have a proper subset of the powers of the feature that upon which you depend, The question there, people will say, well, look, every power of the higher level entity is strictly identical to a power of the lower level entity. So how can it be distinctively efficacious? There's no new powers. But what I want to what I argue is that uh, you can be distinctively efficacious, not in virtue of having new power, but rather by having a distinctive power profile. So. Uh, Why would that be interesting? Well, among other things, it would track difference-making considerations which show up in these uh, discussions of causation. So, for example, um, if my brain state had been slightly different right now, I might have still reached for the glass if I was thirsty, right? So what is uh, these difference-making considerations are tracking the right level of causal grain that's associated with some higher level phenomena where the microphysical details kind of fall out. They just don't matter. They're there and they're needed, right? If they weren't there, I would not be having, you know, a feeling of thirst in the first place. But my thirst, you know, on this, on this view, on this approach to making sense of level structure um, is uh, characterized at a more abstract level of causal grain. Is subject to a more abstract system of laws, causal laws, again typically associated with the special sciences, which do abstract from you know various quantum and other microphysical details. So um, the special science laws and the causal interactions that are associated with these higher-level phenomena on this weak emergentist picture um, are tracking comparatively abstract. Systems of laws and associated causal grain, and that, in virtue of you know being able to track what is relevant at those higher levels, I would you know if my brain state had been different, I would have still reached for the glass because it was my thirst that was kind of uh, tracking what was crucial to that uh, causal interaction. Then you can make sense of mental or. Sorry more generally weakly emergent phenomena as being distinctively efficacious, even though they do not have any novel powers of their own
0: mm. right but i uh, i mean it's it it it's, it's, i mean i guess the uh, the obvious kind of response and I, and you do discuss this is you know why aren't why isn't this just a a form of abstraction you know more of an epistemic mm mm-hmm. Issue than an actual metaphysical issue.
1: Yes, good. Well, that's certainly a line you can take. Um, <laughs> you can take this line, and uh, I, you know, I would just be straightforward that there's nothing in my argumentation that entirely blocks, uh, you know, taking a reductive physicalist stance or uh, and broadly epistemological. Uh, stance on the appearances of structured reality. However, um, I'm also straightforward about uh, my preferred methodology. So um, I think it's of, you know, if not the first importance, certainly very important to uh, accommodate the appearances at face value, unless there's some problem with doing so. So some uh, reductionists, for example, are, are strongly motivated by parsimony considerations. They, they want to accommodate the ph- phenomena using as few uh, posits as as possible. As a kind of extreme version of Occam's race or something like that. But my own methodological inclinations are not so uh, uh, sensitive to these parsim. You know, I think, yeah, parsim. Parsimony considerations are certainly part of the mix, but they are not antecedently more important than just straightforward accommodation of the appearances. So from my perspective and given you know, my uh, preferred methodological criteria where appropriate accommodation of the appearances is you know that looms large in my theorizing, then I want to say to the anti-realist or the reductionist, fine but tell me why I should give up my view you know why should i go your way as opposed to to my way and then if you you know if it's not just a matter of parsimony the main concerns uh, or the main reasons for going reductionist or anti-realist um, that are cited by proponents of that kind of view have to do with uh, Kim's problem of causal overdetermination we haven't talked about this problem but um, this is uh, something I spent a lot of time on in my book. And this is the concern that if you did posit, you know, some real distinct higher level entities, this is going to lead to some kind of problematic causal overdetermination, where you know, the physical goings- on are causing some effect, and then some higher level goings- on is also causing that same effect in a pr- And so the effect is being caused twice over in, you know, uh, an unsystematic and implausible way. So if that were gen- a genuine problem, then just like Jagwon Kim himself did at, as, at certain points of his career, he, he, might, he might say, well, I guess the only thing to do is be reductionist or anti-realist about the higher level goings on. However, Um, part of the motivation for these two schemas for emergence is precisely in response to Jaguan Kim's problems, a problem of causal overdetermination. So um, if you have higher level entity that has a new power, you deny physical causal closure that will block uh, overdetermination because really the physical goings on are not producing the affected issue. If in fact the effect is produced by the, higher level entity in virtue of its new power. So that's one way you can go in response to that supposed problem. And if you go the weak emergentist way, the weak emergentist or the non-reductive physicalist is gonna say, look, if every token power of the higher level entity right is strictly identical to a power of the lower level entity, then you're not gonna get causal overdetermination." even if you allow that the distinctive power profile of the higher level entity renders it such that yes, it can also be a cause. It's not a cause in virtue of having a new power or the same power twice over. It's one of the same power that gets exercised and the distinctive efficacy is not going to be of a problematic variety. So just to circle back to um, the anti-realist, or the uh, reductionist kind of strategy for uh, de- giving a deflationary um, take on the appearances. If the main, if the main reasons are parsimony or the supposed problem of causal overdetermination, then you know my response to the parsimony uh, consideration is just that. Well, parsimony doesn't count for that much. You know, it, it's part of the mix, but I don't think it's it's the only consideration. And if it's the causal overdetermination concern, is supposed to push you towards reductionism or anti-realism, I would say, well, actually, it doesn't, because you know, read my book.
0: <laughs> right, right. Um, yeah, I mean, we're 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 kind of skimming over a, a great deal of of very very densely argued. So. We do the best we can. Um right. <laughs> Yeah. So um let me uh let let's get back to consciousness, you know, because you um, you know, you, you know, after you kind of go through the schemas and some of the you know, objections and responses as you've just sort of, you know, introduced us a little bit too, you 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 consider, you know, do we, you know, do we have good reason actually to think that there are actual cases of, of emergent phenomena, um, in, in either of these ways? Um, you know, so as you mentioned, you know, uh, people doing complexity, you know, complex systems research will often, often talk about, um, emergence at, at particular levels of, of complexity, right. Of, uh, self, self self-organization, um, uh and then you also mentioned the the consciousness case and the free um free will case or free agency case. Um and I, I should say, you know, in the in the neuroscience literature that that I'm more familiar with, you know, you will you will often you know see people, you know, sort of using the word emergent. Um and uh, you know it's it's you know, it's not as if they've read your book or, or anything like that. But you know, there is a there are certainly some neuroscientists, um, you know, who think that you know, in some sense, um, mental phenomena, the mind, is not just identical to the brain. Um, whereas others, of course, just are reductionist. Um, so can you can you uh, maybe we should. Let's let's. I think consciousness is an interesting case for a lot of people. So you you think it's um, not strongly emergent, but probably or could be arguably weakly emergent, right? Is that yeah. your view?
1: Well, my view is that um, the reasons that have been so far offered for thinking that consciousness itself. And here I'm putting aside free agency or free will, which I treat separately. But if we're thinking about either just kind of basic conscious awareness, or um, as is usual in in these contexts, like uh, thinking about the uh, so-called hard problem of consciousness, or thinking about qualitative mental experiences, such as feeling pain, or seeing this red object, and and so on, feeling thirst, etc., um, that uh, Those uh, forms of uh, mental phenomena, I don't, I don't presently see any good arguments for thinking that they're strongly emergent. In particular, the kind of knowledge-based or explanatory gap arguments that are typically on offer uh, for the strong emergence of, uh, quali- let's focus on qualitative mental experience, um, I, don't, I argue that those don't go through for various reasons. However, that's not to say that those phenomena are not strongly emergent. On my view, given that strong emergence ultimately comes down to there being a novel, fundamental interaction, right, at a certain level of complexity, uh, it's an empirical matter whether there is such a fundamental interaction that comes into play at certain levels of complexity. So we are not currently in position, so far as I'm aware, to perform the relevant experiments of the sort, you know, that were relevantly similar to those that motivated the weak nuclear interaction, you know, where you set some system up, predict that it should have a certain amount of energy, et cetera, and then you find out that there's an apparent violation of the conservation law, given only the fundamental physical interactions. That could be, in principle, the case, So I don't want to say that I argue that um, consciousness is not strongly emergent, but just that at present it's an, at best an open empirical question. And I do think that there's a good case to be made that consciousness and in particular, particular qualitative mental experience is weakly emergent um, in virtue of, you know, these sorts of uh, comparative uh Comparatively, abs- being comparatively abstract, right, in a way that um, I have uh, argued is associated with a kind of metaphysical relation called the determinable-determinant relation. So I mentioned that these schemas have many different implementations. And one implementation of uh, the schema for weak emergence was originally suggested by uh, Cynthia and Graham McDonald and then later uh, Stephen Yablo. And then I've developed and defended it in some previous work, according to which you can make sense of mental phenomena being weakly emergent. Um, if you understand these mental features as something like as standing to their lower level physical basis in something like the way A certain color, say red, uh, stands to a more specific shade of that color. So for example, scarlet. So the relationship between red and scarlet uh, is um, an instance of the determinable-determinant relation where red is a determinable. A determinable has many different determinants, so a given um, you know, red could be determined by scarlet, crimson, burgundy, and so on. And this is supposed to be analogous in the case of mental phenomena to a, a given mental state uh, being potentially multiply realized by many diverse physical states. So my, my feeling of thirst could be realized by this brain state or this brain state or that brain state and so on. But again, many people will think that uh, you couldn't have anything be red unless it was some specific shade of red. So you get a kind of echo of this idea of cotemporal material dependence in the case of determinable determinant relation. And so uh, previous philosophers, and then I later defended the idea that you could make sense of the comparative lack of specificity of some of our perceptual and other experiences as being something like a determinable feature that cotemporally materially depended on more determinate physical features. So that's kind of my line on, on, uh, consciousness, especially as associated with qualitative, uh, mental experience.
0: Mm. And how about, um, so, you know, free will is the other kind of big, big case where, uh, you know, you've got positions from, you know, the hard determinists, we don't have any free will. And then, Uh, the libertarian view, uh, where something magic happens in the brain. And then of course, agent causation, which is a totally different ball of wax. Um, so, um, how, how does, how do these two debates sort of, uh, you know, the free will and then the, you know, the emergence, you know, schemas, how do these two things interact?
1: Yeah, good. Um. Well, you know, in my view, I think they are—they're uh, pretty closely related in that you can you can actually draw certain pa- really fruitful parallels between certain positions that are you know of the sort that we've been talking about with respect to non-reductive physicalism or strong emergence and so on uh, over in certain. Uh, n- a certain neck of the woods when we're talking about uh, special scientific properties or maybe qualitative mental goings on and so on. And certain positions over in the free will debates, you mentioned uh, libertarianism and then also compatibilism, hard determinism. So what I argue in the last chapter of my book is that um, you can, uh, I uh, fruitfully draw a parallel between non-reductive physicalism of the sort associated with weak emergence, and compatibilism. And you can also draw a parallel between uh, strong emergence on the one hand and libertarianism on the other. And drawing those parallels, I put, you know, I have a a broader framework that draws on a a paper that Sarah Bernstein and I uh, wrote a few years ago, where we argued that the problem of mental causation of the sort that is targeting uh, qualitative mental events and their relation to the lower level physical events and the concern that if there were distinct qualitative events, they would somehow over-determine their effects uh, already brought about by the physical goings-on. Um, so that's the, call those the, the mental causation debate. There's a broad... Broader parallel between the mental causation debate and the free will debate, and that these problematics in thinking about oh, on the one hand, uh, how could a higher level mental property um, be efficacious qua you know qualitative or given its intentionality and so on, given that the physical goings on are already producing those effects. Uh, you see a kind of parallel problematic in the free will debates. How can a free choice be efficacious as a free, as free, right? Given that, you know, there uh, is reason to think if something like determinism is true, that, you know, any effects of that free choice were already brought about by conditions that had nothing to do with my choosing. So, those two problematics, we argue, are part of this more general concern um, about how do you make sense of a mental event being efficacious in virtue of the type of event it is—maybe qualitative or intentional or free—in the case of free will. You know, given that there are some concerns like physical causal or certain theses like physical causal closure or determinism, which, which threaten the efficacy of the mental event at issue. So having done that and draw, then I go on to draw these parallels between weak emergence slash non-reductive physicalism and compatibilism and between strong emergence uh, and libertarianism. And then I can consider whether we, now that we have a, kind of a handle on on what those positions are in the free will debate by connecting them to these to weak and strong emergent, uh, strong emergence, respectively, then we can look into this question of whether there is actually any of this, of these two forms of free will. And I argue that um, there's plenty of weak emergence, uh, weak emergent free will, in in part just because we're going to have the same kind of pattern that supports uh, there are being weakly emergent phenomena that you know, basically just in virtue of their abstracting away from microphysical detail. So that's going to be enough to get you the kind of um, weak emergence that's associated with compatibilist free will. So plenty of that, but a payoff in my chapter for those who are interested in whether, you know, compatibilism does give you something, you know, does genuinely make sense of free choice of a certain variety is that by connecting it to weak emergence and you can help yourself to the reasons for thinking that weak emergence are distinctively efficacious in virtue of, uh, you know, tracking difference, making considerations and so on and, and tracking relatively abstract levels of grain. So there's plenty of weak emergent free will or compatibilist free will, I argue, but then the, the deep question is whether there's any libertarian free will And here, I think we can say more than just that it's an open empirical question. I think we can give an argument that there is uh, actually strong, emergent free will. and But the argument there does not appeal to, for example, explanatory gap considerations or anything like that. Rather, uh, it appeals to our introspective experience as being able to freely choose in a way that is, as I put it, nomologically transcendent. That is not a matter of either deterministic or indeterministic law. And I ha- I offer an argument according to which, you know, if you have this kind of introspective experience of yourself as being able to do this, this kind of thing, and nearly everyone in the free will debate agrees that we have that kind of Introspective phenomenological experience of ourselves as being able to choose in a nomologically trans, transcendent way. It's just that, you know, people are like, well, we can't make sense of that for one reason or another. So if we can make sense, you know, if we have that experience, that's one premise. And then, second premise, you know, uh, if you have such and such introspective experience, then you have a right to take that at realistic face value unless, you know, you're given some reason to think that you can't do so, right? And then I argue that there is no, as, as yet, no good reason has been provided for thinking we can't take our introspective experience of libertarian free choice, so to speak, at realistic face value. And there the real action has to do with addressing these kind of neuro neuro physiological experiments like the Libet cases and so on, which some have taken to indicate that you can't do that. So that's where the action is. But I argue that we can give alternative interpretations of those uh, experimental results, which don't entail that we don't have nomologically transcendent free will.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean I, I think I was I was not quite so persuaded about that. <laughs> you know, so setting a little bit aside, yeah, but um uh, but in any case, um, th- there would be a lot more to discuss about about that whole chapter, I think. Um, un- unfortunately, we, we are out of time, um, which is pretty incredible. But there you go. Um, that was great. Uh, fun. <laughs> so, yeah, if you could just, you know, to kind of wrap things up, um, what uh, you know, what are you working on now? I mean, what's on, what's on your horizon or on your, on your desk? (laughs) (laughs) Oh gosh,
1: so many piles. (laughs) Um, I am, I'm mainly working on a second book now. Uh, it is on fundamentality and metaphysical dependence. That's a tentative title. And it, it pertains again to these, this question of metaphysical structure where you have, you know some goings on that are taken to be fundamental or relatively fundamental, and others which are taken to metaphysically depend one way or another on those more fundamental goings on. and what um, general metaphysical resources uh, are best for trying to accommodate those you know this uh, this general idea of metaphysical structure, which appears you know in the sciences in religions, in ordinary experience, um, and so on. And of course, in philosophy. So that's my that's my main project right now is is another book generalizing some of the ideas in the first book, um, from the perspective of, you know, expanding beyond metaphysics of science to other areas as well.
0: Great. Well, cool. That sounds, that sounds equally interesting, I would say. Um, but, um, yeah, so we are, we, we should wrap up, but I, so I want to just, um, thank you again for taking the time to talk about your book with, uh, with new books in philosophy. Sorry. Thanks so much for your
1: excellent questions.
0: I really enjoyed our conversation. Okay. Have a good evening and, uh, good luck with the book, the new book. Thanks so much. You've been listening to my interview with Jessica Wilson. We've been talking about her new book, Metaphysical Emergence, which is just out from Oxford University Press. Wilson is a professor of philosophy at the University of Toronto. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed our podcast.